Helps when I turn it on. Thank you, John, for your prayers for us this morning. Well, we come now, or we turn back to the book of Judges this morning. And if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 10, we'll be in verses 1 through 16. We're making our way bit by bit through this book of Judges. And uh, this morning it's a little bit of an interesting turn, but there's a few things in here we're not going to touch on the two what we call minor judges. I'll allude to those in more detail in a few moments. But we're going to focus on this interaction between the people of Israel and the Lord. Before we begin our text, let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us and guide us uh, from his word. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do gather, we are here to hear from you. You are the God who speaks. You are not like the mute idols of this world that all the nations turn to, to find life and joy and peace. Lord, you speak to us even now. And so we pray that you would fill our hearts with the knowledge of your will. Fill us with wisdom and understanding. Do this so that we would walk in a manner worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would live lives that are pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our knowledge of you, not just knowing facts, but knowing you in personal, intimate relationship as our Lord and as our God. We pray you would do this through your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cammon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, 
We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign, the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord to us. May he bless it to our ears and our hearts and our souls. Well, the beginning of this text starts with two minor judges. And throughout the book of Judges, there are what are called minor and major judges. And that's what many scholars refer to them. We're not going to look directly at what these judges are and the significance of them. We'll look at them as we approach the end of the next major judge, Jephthah, as we see the minor judges that will complete that collection of minor judges. And their arrangement and structure is significant in ways that we think about the text, but I think it will be helpful for us next week as we, or in a few weeks as we reflect upon all these different minor judges. Why do they have these brief little interludes in their life? But right now, it's just sufficient for us to see that our text is transitioning from the previous man, Abimelech, who was no judge, who was actually the son of a judge, Gideon, who had gone awry and gone astray and persecuted and oppressed Israel. And now we are transitioning to the next judge, Jephthah. And this is a way to transition from from, uh, Abimelech to Jephthah. But our text this morning presents to us this question of confession and of repentance. And as we read this situation of Israel, we should remember where we are in the book of Judges. It is a a book that is continuing to, to go downward in the life of Israel. And we see Israel is continuing to return again and again to the idols of the countries and nations around it. And we see this form of repentance and we wonder... Is this genuine? Is this what real repentance looks like? And what do we make of God's response to Israel? Is this good? Is God's response motivated out of compassion? Or is this an impatience that's motivated out of frustration? And we must ask the question for ourselves, do we know what true repentance is? Are we people who truly repent? And is this a model for us of repentance? Or is it a negative image of of what repentance is not to be. And so that's what I'd like us to look at this morning, to see what true repentance is and how this text informs that for us. So we see in the life of Israel that they return to idolatry. But something interesting that is unlike the other instances where Israel again goes back and worships all the false gods is that before they traditionally, or will refer to one single God or one single nation, that they worship the Baals or the Ashtaroth. But here in the text, it's very deliberate. 
and the names of the nations and the tribes that surround Israel. It says that they also serve the gods, the Sidonians, of Moab, Ammonites, the Philistines. This is the entire nations that surround Israel, top to bottom and all along the eastern border of Israel. And God is saying to them as they, they offer this repentance, he says, haven't I already delivered you from these people? All these people whom you have been oppressed by, you turned to serve their idols, I delivered you into their hands, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from them, and now you have returned back to these very same idols, these nations that have oppressed you. You've gone back to them. What are you doing? Why are you returning to these false gods who have not delivered you and have only brought you pain, suffering, and sorrow? It's like Israel cannot get enough. They're addicted to idolatry. As soon as God delivers them, they go right back to the very thing that God delivered them from. They can't get enough of it. They look at these Idols, these false gods, as things that will deliver them again, that will provide true satisfaction for them. But there's something this text is pointing out for us even more about the nature of Israel's sin. Is that each time they go back, it gets worse and worse. They don't get better. They don't turn to less gods this time. It's more and more gods. Their sin is multiplying right before our very eyes. It's like somebody who's in a bad relationship. A person, no matter how poorly they're treated and how bad they're disrespected, they keep going back and you tell them, why are you going back to this person? Why do you go back when they mistreat you so? But they say, oh, I love this person. They're going to give me life and happiness. I love when they hold my hand, when they talk with me. But then moments later, you are there to rescue them again out of their troubles it's like somebody who's addicted to drugs and you have to tell them again and then they come back to you like Israel does. Let me back in. Take me into your home. I promise I'll never do this again. Look, I've gotten rid of my drugs. I put them away. They go right back to their same ways. And that's what Israel's doing here. And God does what he promised, what he told Israel he would do to them if they turn to these idols, to the gods of the nations around them. In the book of Deuteronomy, God had made a covenant with Israel and said, if you obey me, if you keep all my commandments, if you do what I tell you, then I will bless you. If you destroy these nations that are in the land of Canaan, if you get rid of them as I am instructing you to do, and if you keep my laws and you obey me as the only Lord and God then I will bless you. Your life in this land of Israel will be fruitful. It will be beautiful and peaceful. But if you disobey me, your life will be full of curses, of judgment. That the very nations that you are supposed to rule over, they will instead rule over you. They will oppress you. As our text tells us, they crushed them. God sold them into their hands. Well, it's important for us to reflect briefly on the nature of Israel itself. Israel is in a unique circumstance. 
And what God is doing with Israel as an entire nation is showing a microcosm of all of humanity. They're a picture to you and I of what humanity is like with the law of God. God is the king. He makes a covenant with people, with humanity, and promises blessing if they obey him and judgment and cursing if they disobey him. And there is no nation like the nation of Israel. This is a unique covenant that God made with the people of Israel. And no nation up until the time of Israel and no nation since the time of Israel can be in this kind of relationship that Israel had with God. It was a one-time, unrepeatable covenant that Israel had with God. And we are to look at these stories and to see and be instructed about the way that God deals with people in relationship to his law. Israel was showing what obedience deserves and what disobedience deserves. And what Israel is showing us in this book of Judges is their utter inability to follow God's law. No matter how many times he saves them, no matter how many times he delivers them, no matter how many prophets he sends to them, Israel goes back to all the same gods, multiplying them and getting worse and worse. See, sometimes Christians today think that if we just had the right rulers in place, if we just had the right laws in place, then this world would be a better place. Now, there is some truth to that. We do want good laws. We want to pray for our leaders that we would have good leaders. The New Testament tells us this. But we should have a realistic picture of what life in this world looks like. If Israel, Israel has God's perfect law given to them, they have the Lord as their God who has made all these promises to them, and they get worse and worse, What expectations should that set for us as we look at our own nation, all the other nations? We should consider it an anomaly when a nation does what is right, not as the norm. It is something that ought to shape and form our thoughts about the way we think of this world because Israel has shown to us time and time again their inability. And it is a picture for us of our own inability. It's supposed to instruct and teach us. And what they're supposed to instruct and teach us is that the very ones that this world turns to for satisfaction, for pleasure, for happiness, for peace, for security, only leads to despair. They turn to false gods Their fundamental problem, and the fundamental problem throughout the whole Old Testament that God indicts Israel for, is idolatry. In fact, it might even be the chief sin. Some people say it's pride. Some people say it's idolatry. It's what I would say it's the both sides of the same coin, or the two sides of the same coin. If you're with us last week in our evening service, we looked at idolatry a bit. It is worshiping and serving anything but God alone. You see this word that they served the idols of the nations around them, the gods. They served them. They bowed down to them. They may not have got down on their hands and knees, but they certainly did so in their hearts. And we might think, 
Yeah, but that was back then. We don't have idols. Where are the idols in our culture? We don't have statues that people are going down and bowing down to. Maybe some religions or sects do this, but they're not as common. It's not like the ancient world where idols are everywhere and statues that people go to and bow down. I mean, we're beginning to see hints of this in our country showing up and cropping up here and there, but it's not a common thing. Why is this? And what's different about our time than the time of 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago? Well, I think, first of all, the ancient world was far more dependent upon the cooperation of nature for their necessities of life. One year of drought would produce devastating effects. You don't get enough of rain in that culture. People may start dying, at least Life is going to be very difficult. You get consecutive years of drought in this time. You have famine. You have widespread disease. People are dying in mass. And their ability to exercise mastery over nature is almost entirely absent. They can't control nature. They can't control the thing. They're totally dependent on what's happening around them to have life, to have all the things they need. And so they sought mastery over the world in a different way. They created gods. They created idols. And they assigned these idols to the different aspects of nature, to water, to rain, to wind, to storms, to the rivers, to the mountains, to the trees. And they went further. They assigned them to all the, in, uh, the, un, or the, the impersonal things, the natural, the, the relational things in life, to love, to sex, to anger, to, to all these different pieces, to war. And if we can pray to these idols, to these things of nature, the things of our own hearts, if we can pray to them and look to them, then we can control them. Then life will go well for us. They made all these different elements of the world around them into idols. And that's where they sought their hope. Do we do this today? Do we have idols? There's a different idol today. Fundamentally, it's the same, but we have a different way of doing this. See, we have done what's called progress. Our world praises progress, that we have progressed from these ancient people who look to stones. No, we don't need those anymore. We have progressed as a species We have control now. We can do it. We have the power to control nature. Driving even to church this morning and looking out the corn, I was talking with my wife about that this year we had the largest corn crop in the United States ever. Now, if you know anything about what the weather's been like this year, you know that this is an astonishing thing, that we had a very significant drought this year. Almost the entire Corn Belt was overtaken by a drought. But our country produced the most corn it has ever done in its history. We have gained mastery over nature. Nature's effects on us are minimized. Not totally gone, but they're certainly minimized. Drought is almost a thing where we say, it's okay, we'll make it through this. We'll five, seven years of drought, that's okay. We'll just draw water from somewhere else. We'll drill down hundreds of feet, thousands of feet into the earth and draw water from places. We'll go even deeper. 
We have progressed. We no longer need these idols to control the world. We do. We have the power. This is why the single greatest threat to our modern life is not the destruction of idols. See, in ancient cultures, if you destroyed an idol, it was a threat to their entire livelihood. That's why the people wanted to kill Gideon when he went in and cut down their ashtoreth and tore it apart and threw it in a fire when he broke down the altar of Baal. They wanted to kill him. How are we going to be taken care of? No, today, the idols are actually the things themselves that we've received. Everything that our hands have produced are now the idol. We don't need these idols. We have the things themselves. All the things that we hope the idols would give us, food, shelter, life, joy, happiness, peace, relationships, sex, all those things. We don't need to look to idols. We have them because we have the power. We have progressed. The idols for us are the things themselves because they project back to us what we wish to be, what we wish to have. Think about it. A house. A house is something that we all need. It's a good thing. With, with food and shelter, you shall be content, the New Testament says. So I need shelter. But how does a house become an idol? It's a good thing to have, but when it tells you something more about who you are, and it projects to the world something about who you are, it says you're stable. It says you have arrived. It says you've done everything right in this world. Look, I own a home, a new car. You can drive around in your new car, or it can be an old car. I like classic cars. It could be an old classic car. Drive around in your car, and everybody looks at you and says, success. He has progressed. He has arrived. He has accomplished it. It can be a full bank account. It can be your vacations that you are so eager to post on social media. I do love them. I do love seeing your social media posts uh, at times. But it's the projection of these things to the world around us that tells us we are secure and we turn all of our possessions into idols, our own money itself. We are warned in Scripture to keep ourselves free from the love of money. Money has its purpose and its service for us, but is meant to serve us, not us to serve it. Our own relationships can become idols. Our attitude, parents, towards our children can become idolatrous. We can pin all our happiness on our success or failure of our children. We see this in the world around us. They have their children in sports 24-7 because if their children succeeds at sports, then they themselves are a successful person. They have accomplished it. It can be academics. It can be in business. It can be in all these kinds of things. And we turn everything into virtual performance factories where we show the world around us that we're beautiful, that we've arrived. We will make anything into an idol. We are no different than these ancient cultures. Our, just, our idols look a little different. So God 
crushes the people of Israel. He sends on them, these nations, to crush them, to break them, to teach them that there is no happiness and joy to be found in these idols. It is his curses now raining down upon his own people to show them, no, these are not where life is to be found. Then the people of Israel cried out, verse 10, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And we go through this and we think, yeah, this looks like really good repentance. But is this true repentance? Is this genuine repentance? It certainly has many of the elements that we would say make up true repentance. We have sinned. They acknowledge that they're sinners. We have, this is what our sin was. We forsook the Lord. They named their sin. And we serve the Baals. They say what they turn to. These are important elements that Israel is doing here that make up confession of sin. Often we fail to do this much when we confess our sin. We just say, I'm sorry for what I did, it was wrong. The question is, what did you do? Here Israel is going going along the right path of repentance. But here it is like the addicted person to whatever it is, substance, person, relationship, thing, that they say the things, yes, I'll leave this for this, I'll leave this, I'll set it aside, I won't go back to it. But what do we know? Their heart's not true. And we don't trust them. We don't trust that this is really the case. Yes, you can say the right words, but where is your heart in all of this? The heart is not true. And that is what we begin to see with Israel here. Because at the very end of what they say to the Lord, God says, you go cry to the gods who you've turned to. Let them save you. They say to this to the Lord in verse 15, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. That word in Hebrew, this, is not always used in these contexts. When you see the word this used, it's emphasizing. They simply want a single time deliverance. And what Israel is doing is they are treating the God of heaven and earth like the idols around them. They're trying to treat God like he's an idol that can be placated by their own works. Look, God, we have cleaned ourselves up. I've made my life better. We know what we did wrong. We're making ourselves better for you. Just take care of us this one time. If only this one time, then everything will go right for us. All they want at the end of the day is the end of their suffering. Do these people really want the Lord as their God? Do they really want God as their king over them? That's the way that this world treats the gods around them, simply as means to end suffering and provide happiness. And our world around us turns to God only insofar as he's useful to them. They will tolerate our religion if it's useful. But the moment it no longer is useful in this life, they will look at us and say, why would I worship your God? 
And commentators and scholars are divided on God's response. It's a difficult word, the difficult phrase that's translated here. And the Lord, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Literally, this says, and the Lord's soul was shortened. Or the Lord's soul became short over the misery. Or even another way that word misery can be turned is work of Israel. So how do we think of what is happening here? Is God, and they, they, the main ways that commentators and scholars think about this is God is impatient over the misery and he is becoming compassionate towards Israel. And the other camp says, no, the Lord is actually becoming impatient over what is happening in this situation. And he's like a father or a mother who has a child who is addicted to drugs. And they come back home and leave, go back to drugs, and come back home and then leave and go back to drugs. What's the situation? I think the story of Samson gives us a clue that when Delilah, if you don't know the story, Samson was another judge we'll hear about in a few weeks. And in that story of Samson, Delilah asks him over and over and over and over to cut his, to find out what the source of his strength is. And then we see in a verbatim use of this phrase, his soul became shortened. He became impatient. He could bear it no longer. He says, I am tired of this. And the Lord is becoming impatient, tired of the suffering and misery of Israel and also of everything that Israel is doing, what they are doing to him. See, Israel had not learned their utter helplessness and weakness. They had not learned that what they need most of all is not to cry out to the Lord for deliverance from the enemies around them, but to cry out to the Lord for deliverance from their sin, from their idolatry. Lord, deliver us from the idols. That is what they needed to do. But they act like the rest of us. We think we can please the Lord by our works. They had not learned that they need to have faith, to trust in the Lord, to say, I have nothing in me to commend myself to you. And you and I are just like the Israelites. We return right back to our same sins, just like them. You're probably sitting here thinking, yeah, I can point to you the several sins in my life that I just went back to this week. The anger, the frustration, the words, the actions. And like Israel, we need to see ourselves as those who are utterly incapable of conquering our own sin. What Israel needed to know was they needed somebody else to do it. They needed a king. This is one of the things that Judges is teaching us, that Israel needs a king who can finally conquer not just the, the idols and the nations around them, but most importantly, their sin, their idolatrous heart. And that's why you and I, we need Jesus Christ today, because he's the one who conquered sin once and for all. And that's why we live by faith as Christians. And we know this because we we learn from daily experience, but more importantly, we learn from God's words that we cannot conquer our sin on our own. We can't conquer it ourselves. 
And we live by faith looking to Jesus Christ that is in him is our victory over our sin. And when our sins, when our idolatry rears its ugly head in our hearts, what do we do? Do we be like Israel and promise, oh, I'll just clean my life up. Then everything will be better. Then the Lord will be happy with me and he'll deliver me from my suffering. Or do you look to Jesus Christ and say, there is my victory over sin. Now, you might think that gives you an excuse to stay in your sins. If I just look to Jesus, then all my sins are covered and everything's taken care of and I can just go living back in my sins since Jesus took care of it. But what God is teaching us through the Israelites is you cannot fly to deliverance and excuse those sins as if they were no big deal, as if you can still live, when, live in them without consequence. This is what Romans chapter 6 says to us. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, it's precisely through looking to Jesus in faith it's through looking to Jesus Christ, trusting that he is the one who's borne your sin, who has accomplished the victory over all the powers of evil, that you find your deliverance. Because it's in his flesh and blood, it's in his obedience, it's in his work that we have deliverance, that we can't bring about ourselves. We always think we need to make ourselves worthy. We always do. Whenever we find sin in our lives, our hearts immediately run that we need to clean ourselves up. And what Judges is showing to us is you can't. You can't clean yourself up. Only Jesus can. You can't make yourself worthy. And that is the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done as the true King of Israel. Is that he is the king who has made us worthy. And that's the fuel. That is the power for the Christian life. That's the power for you. That's what the Israelites needed. They need to look to their Savior and say, there's my hope. As I was driving to church, we see all these runners running these races, and it was really exciting to see. It's really fascinating to see them running these races. But they're running to finish to win the prize. But as Christians, the, finishes are, the race is already done. It's already won. It's not running a race because we're expecting that we're going to, on our own effort, achieve that prize. Before we ever step one foot onto the path of obedience, the entire race is finished and done. And Jesus Christ gives that to us as a gift. It's all completed. Colossians chapter 2, a few verses before what we read this morning. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established firm in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, we walk in the path of obedience to Christ, not because it is the path through which we secure our salvation, like Israel is trying to do to the Lord, treating him like an idol that they can manipulate. We walk in the path of obedience 
because it is now ours to enjoy. And that is the truth that shatters our hearts. It shatters our own expectations of self-wrought deliverance from sin. As J. Gresham Machen says in his little book, Christianity and Liberalism, paganism is optimistic with regard to unaided human nature, whereas Christianity is the religion of the broken heart. We recognize who we are in the sight of God. Thankfully, Machen goes on and says, Christianity does not end with the broken heart. It is a triumphant, resounding amen to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. See, he doesn't just deliver us from the consequences of our sins. He delivers us from sin itself. That is not what Israel wanted. But that is what Jesus Christ gives you in himself. So brothers and sisters, And sisters, look to Jesus Christ. Find in him the power of salvation for your life to walk in obedience to him because he has given it to you freely as a gift for your life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks to you for Jesus Christ that he has given us this gift freely of salvation. And Lord, we pray you'd work in us true repentance Not simply that we would forsake sin, but that we would turn to the true God out of a true sight of the work of Christ on our behalf. That he would draw us by his grace and his mercy towards us. Lift our hearts to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.